This is The Evolution of Intimacy with Ella Shannon, a show about sex, relationships, and everything in between. You can start to feel bliss while you're vacuuming. I don't know if I've tried that or not. Do I want to try it? What is it? Very complex, very interesting. Clogging, whipping, caning. So there I was in my high heels and my little dress. So it is purely a stigma. Healthy sexual expression with other humans. I went to the local women's health centre and went, I think I'm a lesbian, is there a support group? They don't know quite how to talk about it. It's actually a core skill in relationships. That has always worked for me. My guest today is a sexologist and a body worker. She has a Master's of Sexology and her dissertation was on delayed ejaculation. Welcome, Alana. Thanks so much for having me. Alana, maybe the best place to start is to ask, what is delayed ejaculation? Uh, yes, the, the complicated question that is delayed ejaculation. Delayed ejaculation, and I like to refer to it as DE because it's just a nice, easy way to shorten it. It's basically broken up into three different categories from the umbrella. The first is the delay or a marked latency in ejaculation. The second one is an infrequency, so someone who, even if they have the delay, they don't always actually find that they ejaculate during intercourse with a partner. And then the final one is a total absence. Most men are able to find an ejaculation at some point, but there are some men who, um, even with masturbation, have never in their life been able to ejaculate at all. I find that really interesting because it seems to be this idea that the longer uh, the penis owner lasts, the better it is for their partner. But really in my work as a sex therapist, I've heard many couples where this does cause issues and sex stops being so pleasurable. There can be a frustration. Did you find that? It can get quite painful to have prolonged sex. If you've been going for like 45 minutes an hour, it can become quite painful even with lubricant. And so it's important to be able to not force yourself to keep going yeah. for this. Many of these men have reported that they were met by psychologists and GPs and other allied healthcare professionals who responded to them expressing this with, well, you should feel lucky or like good for you and this isn't really a problem, this is a great thing and they were just kind of like, what the hell? (laughs) They're really upset by that. While there is a lot of distress in some people and, and a lot of these men have reported feeling distress when they're investigating their experience in the beginning, I was really surprised to find that actually in my research that there were actually a lot of positive psychology outcomes that actually came from this with adaptive behaviors of still being able to find satisfaction during sexual activity in pleasure for their partner. There's a lot of distress that happens in the beginning. A lot of these men think, I'm by myself. No one else has this. And they just think that they're, I'll just use a quote from someone and say broken Hmm. and like that there's something wrong with them. But as time goes on, the majority, I think it was 10 out of 13 of the participants that I had, 10 out of the 13 actually were like, I don't feel that way anymore. 
and they were able to find coping mechanisms that were healthy and adaptive that really helps them find a positivity in this for themselves. Did the people that you studied find those adaptive coping strategies themselves? Are they things that they just came to or did they receive psychological support or support from a sex therapist? No, it happened kind of on their own where it was kind of like, well, they didn't know anything different and they were just kind of like, well, I just have to figure out a way to make this work for myself. And a lot of it was dependent on the communities they were involved in, as well as the partners that they had. So most of my participants actually came from the BDSM and kink community, which I find really interesting and hint for another research for someone who wants to investigate this in the future. I think the BDSM and kink community gave a different perspective to this disorder for them. It's not so genitally focused there if they swing or if they're a part of multiple partner play scenes, there's more for them to do in those situations. So some of them have talked about, yes, I was in a a scene with multiple partners. I was with somebody whose partner was never able to give them an orgasm, or maybe they were with a partner who has never had an orgasm, and they were able to provide that. So it gave them a sense of purpose and able to provide pleasure to another person. And some of them were able to find some alleviation or like a sense of release from scenes where it wasn't so genitally focused. So they felt like they could still be sexual and play and have fun without the whole let's focus on your penis Mm -hmm. because it can just be so distressing to have this focus on, hey, I need you to ejaculate now. Like, uh, this needs to happen for me. So there's less of a pressure when things aren't generally focused. Yeah. That wasn't the focus of my research, but it was just kind of this interesting thing that came up. So it wasn't in my objectives, but it was just this interesting kind of sidebar that happened. So having a community of support where there's less judgment because everybody's into their own thing You are listening to The Evolution of Intimacy with me, Alice Shannon, a show about sex, relationships, and everything in between. Most of us have not been encouraged or taught how to talk about sex. They are curious. Hang on a sec. I'm a woman. Like, I have needs now. Whole new level of sensation and pleasure. I looked at my yoni before and after and mm. I was like, oh my God. You may experience a range of emotions. What we associate as being related to one gender or another, it changes all the time. Pleasure is our birthright. You're on these massive doses of steroids. I look like Bert Newton. I wouldn't have been attracted to myself. (laughs) So they were just so happy to know that A, they weren't alone, and B, that this was like a legitimate thing. And that actually sounds really lovely and erotic, really pleasurable. It's a secret. Mind-blowing. So that makes a lot of sense, people finding ways to find their satisfaction and their pleasure that's not so focused on ejaculation. And, you know, of course we know that when there's pressure, it creates anxiety and that always makes issues worse. How did you find the partner's reactions to DE. The partner reaction had the most effect. 
So my two bigger objects. So in relationships with a partner, I found that depending on how the partner would react, that would heavily impact the person who actually had the DE. A lot of partners think, oh, this is a challenge. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be the one to make you ejaculate. And then when they realize they can't, they start to internalize it. And they're like, are you not attracted to me? Am I not doing something right? And then that puts a lot of pressure on the ejaculation. The partner takes away from the lived experience of the person with the actual disorder. So the focus comes again, like it does during sexual activity, comes off of them. And the focus then becomes on their partner who's not experiencing the disorder. So these people with this lived experience never really get to have their experience for their own. And that was kind of an observation that I made while conducting this. Everything just becomes about this other partner, whether it's their distress or their pleasure. So a lot rides on the partner that you bring in to your life when you have this disorder. I could just imagine how frustrating that could be in the beginning of things. These men have really found the majority of them have found a way to positively put a spin on this for themselves in order to still want to engage in sexual activity, to still want to seek out a partner, which I think is a really beautiful thing. So what would you say to people who are experiencing this or perhaps have a partner who is experiencing this? This whole research was inspired by my partner who has delayed ejaculation. And so while I was doing this research, there's a lot of stuff that we've explored with. I can really only take from my experience and from what I've talked to my my other participants about. But I think the most important thing that has come up, both for me and my own experience with my partner and my participants, is communication is so important. Being in a safe, non-judgmental space for the partner with this disorder to be able to say and express what maybe their needs are is, is really key here. And, and that's really key for any sexual relationship and really listening to what their needs are and being able to talk openly about if you're the partner to someone who has this disorder, feeling okay to say, I know that I have this thing about you ejaculating and that really does it for me, but I understand that that's not going to happen really working through your own stuff with how you feel about ejaculation while keeping that open communication with your partner. Because really trying to break down those preconceived notions of ejaculation is the end-all, be-all. It's the same as the penis and vagina debacle of that being the ultimate sex that somebody can have. Ejaculation isn't the end-all, be-all. Being able to check in with your partner and saying, do you still feel satisfied? is really important because then you can get that verbal yes. Be able to say stop, but be able to check in. So foreplay here, any kind of sexual play and intimacy is really important. The stuff you do before the intercourse, even without the intercourse, is so important. Yeah, and it makes sense when you speak like that, Alana, that there's opportunity there because you have to sort of slow things down and really talk about needs and so on that perhaps there's an opportunity to go deeper or to go somewhere that perhaps you wouldn't have otherwise gone together. Exactly. And I think in a weird way it builds a really deep sense of intimacy because there's no 
finish line. There's no intercourses above everything else. It's just let's play and investigate each other's bodies. Let's explore and let's be here in the moment rather than find that end goal. Yeah. And in that, there's a lot of satisfaction and a, a lot of relief. It takes the pressure off both partners to seek out a goal. Mm. So I've got two questions that are burning. One is a bit of a silly question, but I want to ask it anyway and see what you say. <laughs> so you said some people have never ejaculated. Is that mm-hmm. dangerous? What happens to the sperms and all the seminal fluid that is there? Does it just get absorbed? Is there any issues with prostate or anything else that can happen to people if they can't ejaculate? This is why the research is so important, because we don't actually know. There's no retrograde ejaculation. Orgasm and ejaculation are actually two separate events that just happen to be co-occurring most of the time. And only one of my participants has actually experienced Hmm. that an orgasm without ejaculation, but he has a very serious tantra practice. None of my other participants had this, so it's not really in the research. But it is a separate event. None of these other men really have experienced an orgasm without the ejaculation. The participants who have never experienced ejaculation have also never experienced orgasm. Mm. The men who have been checked out by physios to make sure that nothing is physically wrong with them because there's so many reasons it can appear. The men who have been checked out by physios are like, well, nothing is physically wrong with me. What really comes next for people with an absence is finding a way to hook them up to something that can see if they're actually able to build up that sperm when they have an erection or if there's a lack of buildup there. Mm. I don't think there's really a test for that at the moment. Mm -hmm. So I, I really can't say, but it's not dangerous because they're not having a retrograde ejaculation where it goes into the bladder or anything like that. It's just not happening at all. And I imagine then it would cause distress if the man wanted to be a father. That could be really difficult. Did that come up in your research at all? There's one that has an infrequency and an absence. He's only ejaculated a couple of times under really specific circumstances where it actually made him pass out. And the other one who has complete absence, never has ejaculated. Neither one of them mentioned the concern about kids. I think maybe the first one with the infrequency at first maybe had mentioned something, but I think really the focus is on the here and the now of it because they're still quite young. Right now the focus is this isn't happening at all. These two men are two out of the three who have maladaptive coping mechanisms. The one who's never had an orgasm had said something to me like, I don't even want to be social anymore because if there's anything that could lead to something sexual with anyone, I would rather just not meet them ever and just not go out and be social. And he actually is part of the kink community. But I was happy to hear that after doing our interview and being a part of the research that he was deciding to seek out help and take a more positive view later. So it's interesting how just talking about something can really start to turn things around for someone. Yeah, absolutely. I know you've already just said it's so nuanced and layered and there's no one reason. 
But did you mm-hmm. start to get a bit of a sense of how this develops or why this occurs for some penis owners? Well, there's a lot of reasons. And that was one of the reasons I wanted to do a, a, a pure sample of just people with primary. So they've had it lifelong um, as opposed to secondary where it happens later in life. There's no research that has a pure sample that I was able to find. So I was really proud of and really glad that I was able to find this because things like SSRIs and other antidepressants, that can cause it as like a secondary. So we wanted to remove all of that and see what happens with the primary. There can be psychological stuff like childhood trauma that can cause this. If there was an event that happened during that first partnered experience, that could definitely instigate something belief systems, if there's something physical, like two of my participants had damage to their genitals through accidents. One was a bike accident, one was a masturbation accident, but this was before their first partnered sexual experience, so we'll never know sure if the physical was a part of it but they're still able to ejaculate one of them does have a child Hmm. but by accident of all things Hmm. yeah it's just it's hard to say but i think the important thing to focus on especially for any clinician who wants to work with this is that it really needs to be tailored to the individual yeah there's no blanket there's no gold standard there's no specific intervention method and i think the important thing to focus on is really not let's get you ejaculating all the time in a normal amount of time because that's just never going to probably happen. Finding that good enough, like that Barry McCarthy sex model, that good enough model, they can still feel good about the sexual activity that they're having. That's really, really the goal. So we don't, we don't have an idea of what can cause this because there's so many reasons why it could be caused. So it's about looking at the individual and their history, not just their sexual history, but any kind of accidents. Get them checked out by a physio first before anything happens. So there can be biological and physiological reasons. That's the first thing to set aside. Make sure it's not medication-induced. That's another thing to set aside. And from there, if everything's physically okay and they're not on a medication that can cause this issue, then really focusing on the psychological stuff. Delayed ejaculation can turn into erectile dysfunction if it's not addressed. They can get performance anxiety. They struggle to get an erection or keep an erection. And that started to show up in some of my participants and can't say whether specifically it was performance anxiety or not, but some of them were starting to experience that. And I think it might be kind of something that happens in the back of the mind where it's like, oh, well, this part of me is separate. They have these disassociations from their body, so they're not fully embodied. And then they lose their erections or can't make them happen. So that eventually can lead to erectile dysfunction. Alana, I remember you talking about idiosyncratic masturbation practices and you used a really cool term that I hadn't heard before. Do you mind talking about that? Idiosyncratic masturbation habits, for anyone who doesn't know, is when you need to masturbate in a certain way in order to reach ejaculation. So in previous research, death grip syndrome is a thing. And death grip syndrome is basically you grip the penis so tightly, whether the focus is at the head or at the base, whatever it is, it's usually around the head where most of the nerve endings are. They don't use any lubricant. They grip it so tightly. They masturbate so rigorously that it starts to chafe the skin 
and sometimes they bleed. Mm. They're literally choking out their penis, really dulling down the stimulation that's available in the nerve. I used this method that I had found in some research, this eight-week program. I used it with my partner to see if there was any efficacy to it. It seemed to really do something where there are these Tanga sex toys that can provide a tight grip safely with the use of lubricant. But they have these different versions where they have one that the focus is on the head. They have another where it's like different textures inside. So it gives this intense stimulation for somebody who grips tightly so they still feel something. It's about switching it up. So if they're right-handed, they will switch to their left hand while they masturbate. Do it until they can reach completion. And this is more for somebody who has the delay because somebody with the absence, even if they might just try to masturbate still, it doesn't lead to an ejaculation, so it's harder to retrain that. Yeah. The nerve endings start to regenerate and come back, and the stimulation starts to become more sensitive so that when they are having intercourse, they're able to respond to that more readily because with death grip syndrome, with these idiosyncratic masturbation habits, they condition themselves to their hands. Yeah. And those are things that cannot be mimicked by any body part, whether that be the mouth, anally, vaginally, anything. And even if that other person, that partner used their hand, it's not the same because this person has really catered specifically to the way that their uh-huh. hand works. Can't be replicated so. by someone else. Yeah, but it's not impossible to retrain. It takes a lot of patience. Yeah, they just have to really want to do the work. And and I don't know if it's a blanket help for anybody with this issue, but I did find that there was some validity when my partner and I tried it. It sounds like your research really helped you and your partner, but also the participants to learn about themselves and confront a few things that had been holding them back in the past. Yeah, no worries. I made sure that my partner was okay with me sharing some stuff just because it really was the inspiration for everything that I did. And I'm so glad that I did it because these men, more than anything else, were just so happy to find that some of them didn't even know they that this was a real thing until they saw my research flyer. Mm. And so they were just so happy to know that, A, they weren't alone, and B, that this was like a legitimate thing. Because men with infrequency or absence see the title delayed ejaculation, and it doesn't really fit them. So they don't realize that it actually applies to three different groups yes. with this. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm sure people listening are going to get so much from this and really lots of food for thought there. Alana, thank you again so much for coming on Evolution of Intimacy and sharing your research with us. Thank you so much. I love this. So anytime. <laughs> Great. All right. Thanks again. No worries. You've been listening to The Evolution of Intimacy with Ella Shannon. We're feeling juicy the whole day. Every desire I could possibly think of. What sort of impact would it have? They want it, they're going to go and get it. They don't think of long-term consequences. Oh, did that feel really nice? Oh, yes, that felt really delicious. Being able to feel good about my body again, that's been a huge thing. All anybody really wants in this world is to feel seen and heard. We actually do have a lot that connects us physically. It's making people feel good. 
there is a real sense of hopefulness that returns in the relationship. A really beautiful thing. Take that beauty and that calmness and that bliss and that sense of peace out into the world. Thank you for listening and I hope we've inspired you with our juicy conversations on this episode of The Evolution of Intimacy. If you would like to go deeper, you can book a session of relationship counselling, sex therapy or individual counselling via my website. I work in person in Cairns, tropical far north Queensland, or I can meet you online anywhere in the world. Or you might prefer to go at your own pace with my 12-lesson relationship and intimacy online course. To book or to listen to previous episodes, visit my website, ellashannon.com, or follow me on the socials at Evolution of Intimacy. Finally, please go to iTunes and write me a quick review if you're feeling kind. Thank you, lovelies, and see you next time.